0: Hello and welcome to Psych OG. This is a psychology podcast here to coach you through your Cambridge International Psychology 9990 AS exams. We are here to bring you all that you need to know for the 12 key studies. I'm Joe, and I'm here in New Zealand.
1: I'm Carl and I'm here in Kathmandu, Nepal.
2: I'm Jamie here in Spain.
0: And
3: I'm Leanne here in China.
0: This week, we are bringing to you the very special study by Andrade. There has been a little bit of discussion amongst us presenters about how to pronounce this name, but Jamie, who's in Spain, she is pretty sure that it's Andrade, so we're going to go with that today. So this study is all about doodling. So Jackie Andrade has titled her study, What Does Doodling Do? We all doodle, and so it would definitely be worth knowing what doodling does. Is it helpful to help us focus and remember information? Or is it harmful and makes us to forget everything that we hear? Andrade deals with this in a fairly novel way in this study. So I'm going to pass it off to Carl, who's going to tell us a bit about the psychology investigated.
1: I'm actually wondering what those people that are listening to this podcast actually might be doing at the same time, because really that's fundamental to what this study is about, how we attend to different things in our environment how we filter out certain things, how different tasks that we're doing at the same time actually affect each other. And in psychology, there's a, this post called dual task approach when they're doing studies. And just as the name is, dual task, it means what happens when you're doing two different tasks at the same time, and how do those two different tasks interfere with each other? The framework within which this is looked at from a a cognitive perspective is looking at theories of memory. We don't really need to go into the theories of memory. There's various ones, Broadbent and Treisman and so on. But really what those theories do is they say that while we're bombarded with perceptual information, sensory information is coming towards us, We actually don't use all of it. We actually filter out some of it. With the limitations on our working memory, we can't actually attend to or pay attention to all the information that we are faced with. Now, this study by Andrada looks at how doodling might actually affect how we focus on different information and whether That task of doodling actually can have an impact on how we listen to other information. Now, it's kind of important in this study that the participants are faced with two tasks. One of them is doodling, which is a non-auditory type of task. It's a visual task and a motor task. Moving your hand to color things in or to draw things is one type of task. And then we have this other task, which is to listen to a recording. So we've got these two types of tasks that are actually kind of duelling with a different spelling for the cognitive resources that we have. Andrade looks at two different things that could be happening here. One could be that the doodling actually increases attentional focus so that while you're doodling, you actually can pay attention better to auditory information, or is that doodling actually detracting from the ability or reducing the ability to attend to the information? So this is quite interesting, really, the way they look at this. And it hadn't been tested before, even though different researchers had kind of considered this in the past. This was the first experiment that's really been focused to see what exactly is going on here. And of course, there are applications here in real life, as well as in how people study tasks in cognitive psychology as well.
2: Okay, let's carry on with the aim and hypothesis. So the main aim that Andrade was looking for here um, was to test whether doodling helped or aided concentration in a boring task. So we're going to talk about the situation and how they specifically tried to make it boring and so on. But they're trying to find out if doodling does help, if it aids concentration when they're in a boring task. Now, that's not what the participants were told. You know, we have to avoid demand characteristics. And so the participants were told specifically not to try to remember anything and just to listen for certain names. So they were listening to a recording. We're going to talk about this when we get to the procedure. But in order to understand the fake aim, we have to explain a little bit. About what they were supposed to do so they're supposed to listen to a recording that talks about some people who are going to a party and who was not going to the party and so on so the participants were asked specifically not to try to remember anything and to just listen for and write down certain names the ones who are going to the party and then to ignore the other names of the people not going to the party so it's a fake aim so Fast forwarding to ethics, there will be some deception here, but they were told specifically not to try to remember anything, which could itself be a demand characteristic as well. Could be a big clue that they are supposed to, as we might find out later. So the fake aim was to complete a monitoring task. The monitoring task is to determine and write down the names of those who are going to the party based on what they hear in the audio. They're monitoring for the names who are going to the party and they are to ignore the names of the people who are not going to the party. In the future, when we talk about the monitoring task, that's what they're referring to. They're supposed to be trying to just write down those names of the attendees. And it's monitoring because they're listening for it. They're listening for specific information, so it's monitoring.
3: Okay, so thinking about our participants and sampling method. In this study, we had 40 participants, drawn from a general population, aged 18 to 55. Okay, now the participants were mainly female, so out of the 40, actually only five were male. Now these participants were drawn from a participant panel at the Medical Research Council Unit for Cognitive Research. So there were people who had volunteered to take part in studies and experiments. However, we need to be careful because in this study, it is not a volunteer sample. It is actually an opportunity sample as the participants were asked to take part as they finished another experiment. So just be careful if you're writing about that in an exam. Now, the participants were split into two groups, uh, 20 participants in each group. So 20 participants in the experimental group, 20 participants in the control group. And just for interest, there was one participant in the doodling group who did not doodle and that person was actually replaced.
2: We're going to move on to the experimental design and type of study. This would be considered a lab study, a lab setting. Everything was quite controlled. It wasn't a a field experiment. They weren't caught in a natural environment or anything like that. So it's a lab setting. It is independent groups design. So with that, we'll talk about the independent variable and the dependent variable. The independent variable will be the doodling group. So we have these two groups who are completing this task of listening, having the monitoring task. They're listening for the specific information and some of them will be doodling and some of them will not be doodling at all. They'll just be listening for the names. They'll be completing the monitoring task. So those are the two groups. Obviously, the control group is the one that doesn't, it's the lack of the manipulation of the variable. And what is being measured, the dependent variable, are the mean number of correct recall, false alarms, and memory scores. So when we get into results, we'll be looking into those things a bit more.
0: Yes, and when it comes to DV, there's actually a couple of things in terms of um, recalling information. So there's the recall of the monitored information. So that was the names of the people, which, Leanne's going to talk about soon about the recording but then there's the recall of the incidental information which is the place names which is also included in the recording Though so I will let Leanne tell us more about that now
3: Now in terms of apparatus it's quite simple here but perhaps for most of you guys quite old-fashioned the participants were played a mock telephone message so a fake telephone message on an audio cassette played via a cassette recorder and they were told the tape would be quite dull. It was read in a monotone voice, okay, with an average speaking rate of 227 words per minute. And that was played for them at what is described as a comfortable volume. Okay, so I'm just going to read you a little bit of the script which you can find in your course book and in the appendix of the original study. Hi, are you doing anything on Saturday? I am having a birthday party and was hoping you could come. It's not actually my birthday, it's my sister Jane's. She'll be 21. She's coming up from London for the weekend, and I thought it would be a nice surprise for her. So as you can hear, that very flat, monotone or tone reading, so very, very dull to listen to. And that recording lasted 2.5 minutes. Okay. And contained within that script, there were eight names of people attending a party, three people who were not attending and one cat who obviously was not attending the party either. There were also eight place names and a range of other information that was irrelevant for the purpose of the study but was there to kind of create the fake message.
0: Coming along to the procedure now that we've found out all about the recording, the participants came in here from another experiment and they were expecting to go home. So. This was part of how they were recruited for the study, of course. The whole idea of this was to enhance the boredom of the task by testing people who were already thinking about going home. The room they were tested in as well was quiet and visually dull to help add to that level of boredom to encourage people to be a bit more daydreaming. Once I entered the room and they had agreed to the task, they were told, I am going to play you a tape. I want you to pretend that the speaker is a friend who has telephoned you to invite you to a party. The tape is rather dull, but that's okay, because I don't want you to remember any of it. Just write down the names of the people who will definitely or probably be coming to the party, excluding yourself. Ignore the names of those who can't come. Do not write anything else. For those in the doodling condition, the experimental condition here, they were also asked to shade in squares and circles while listening to the tape. So they had a sheet that had a bunch of squares and circles on it. Each of the squares and each of the circles were uh, one by one centimeter or for the circles, they were one centimeter in diameter. There were 10 in each line and there were a bunch of them on the page. And so they were asked to shade those in. And the specific instructions here was it doesn't matter how neatly or how quickly you do this. It is just something to help you relieve the boredom. They're still like leading up to this whole idea that this is a boring task. We're emphasizing the boredom here. Then they listened to the tape, which we already know lasted about two and a half minutes, and they wrote down the names as instructed of those who were attending the party. When the tape had finished, the experimenter then collected the response sheets from the participants.
1: So after this monitoring task that the participants had done, they then engaged in a one-minute conversation with the researcher. This was just like a kind of a pause there isn't any information in the paper about exactly what they talked about it was just general conversation but it terminated with the researcher apologizing for mis- misleading the participants about the task that we were doing and telling them that they needed to do a memory test on what they'd listened to now the participants were split into two different groups here 50% of them were Asked to recall the party goers' names and then recall the place names. Okay, so that was 50% of them party goers' names first, place names second. And then that was switched over for the other 50% of participants were asked to recall the place names first and the party goers' names second. Now, this switching over you might have seen done in some other way in some other experiments. And there's a special name for this, and that's called counterbalancing. So what this does, it means that if you've got two procedures that come one after the other, you want to kind of balance the impact of each of these by switching them over, so that they actually have the same effect overall on the results of the study. So think about a balance, doing one thing first and one thing second. Is that order effect of doing them in that order, is that actually going to have an an impact on the results? And if you think it might, you might want with your participants to do it in the opposite order to counterbalance that. So counter the effect of that by doing this kind of balancing of the order. So that's what they did with this procedure. They counterbalanced the the procedure that they used. After this, they then did a debriefing. And in that debriefing, they actually stated the actual aims of the experiment to the participants. So they knew exactly what was going on. So that kind of was done to deal with the deception. Um, And we can talk about that a little bit later with the ethics. And this debriefing also included asking the participants if they expected that the memory was going to be tested and that's kind of important because they looked at that later to see what effect it had if a participant did guess that they were part of a memory test at the end or not so they actually did something with the results based on that
3: okay so before we look at the actual result we need to understand how they were calculated and also, a couple of key terms to understand how they were operationalised or explained in the study. So, first of all, if we take how the studies were scored. So, remember, we had two tasks the monitoring task and the recall performance task. So, the monitoring performance was scored by taking the number of correct names written down minus what Andrade called false alarms. And then the recall performance was scored in the same way. So remember, the recall is the memory of the names and the unexpected recall for places. That was scored in the same way, but scored separately. So names and places were scored separately. Now, Andrade talked about something called plausible mishearings. So that is when something was written down incorrectly, but you could kind of see where the name came from. So perhaps it sounded very similar. Okay, so for example, Greg and Craig both had that g sound within them. So that would be counted as a plausible mishearing. But it had to be the same in the monitoring and the recall tasks. So in other words, if somebody wrote Greg or Craig in the monitoring task, they also had to write the same mishearing in the recall task. Now, false alarms were names that were either not included in the original recording or were lures or tricks within the tape.
2: Thank you, Leanne. Uh, we're going to talk about the results, the average number shaded of shapes and the range. Okay, so keep in mind that they are shading in for uh, two and a half minutes because that's the uh, length of the audio that they're listening to. So the mean shapes shaded were 36.3, and the range was from three to 110. <laughs> so I just imagine like, Some people are not really into doodling or shading anything, and they're just kind of doing it because they're being asked to. And other people are probably doing like a little scribble in each one because perhaps they think that they need to fill it in. So we don't really know what their thoughts are behind this, but 3 to 110 is quite a big range of shapes to be shading in. But the mean was 36.3. But 36.3 is a reasonable amount of shapes per the two and a half minutes that they're listening so we do have one participant who did not doodle so that person had to be replaced because they didn't know how to listen to instructions so keep in mind that in our classes if you do not listen to what we ask you to do you might be replaced i'm just kidding okay um <laughs> the next result we'll be looking at is the number who suspected a memory test so like carl mentioned he said that there were some people who did suspect that they were supposed to remember something. So the participants in the control condition did not doodle. We need to remember that. So there were three doodlers and four from the control group who suspected a memory test, okay? So three doodlers and four controls suspected a memory test and none of them actively, even though they were suspecting that a memory test was coming, they did admit that none of them actually tried to remember the information. They carried on with the task even though they were suspicious.
1: Now, I actually think for this next bit of results, it's good to look at page four in the paper. So if you do have the paper available, now is a good time to pause the podcast, run away, get the paper ready, and then you'll be able to see what I'm looking at as I talk to you about the results. Because I think it's also good for you to interpret data in tables being able to represent and interpret data like this. So table one, which says mean correct recall, false alarms, and memory scores. I'll explain what those things mean for the names and places for the control and doodling groups. And then there's some other extra information there as well. Let me first of all, focus on the monitoring performance. So we said earlier that this study was divided into almost like two parts. One, the person listened, doodled or didn't doodle, and listened and monitored the audio for the names of people. And then they wrote them down. When they were monitoring that information, they could have, you know, say they they heard the name, the example that's given in the paper was, they might have written Greg instead of Craig. I'm used to that, my name. They say, what's your name? And they say, Carl. And they're like, what, Carl? And they think I'm called Colin for some reason. So that's kind of like a plausible mishearing. The plausible mishearings were actually classed as correct, but sometimes people completely misheard and they wrote down the wrong name. So that would have been a failure in monitoring. So they were monitoring the names, writing these names down. And in the doodling condition, they wrote down, on average, the mean was 7.7 correct names as they monitored. And that's just for the names of the people that they thought were invited to the party, which was actually significantly higher than in the control condition, the non-doodling condition. The average for that was 6.9. Now, the other thing to take into account here is the range of these values. So even though we've got an average for the number of participants monitoring, the spread of that data is kind of important here because in the doodling condition, they had a mean of 7.7, and they mentioned here the spread as the standard deviation was 0.6. And then for the control condition, which had a mean of 6.9, it had a much bigger standard deviation of 1.3. So that actually, is quite important. Just looking at the mean or the average only tells you a little bit about the data. Something else to notice here is that 15 of the doodlers and nine of the controls actually scored the maximum of eight names. There were eight names to be written down. There's quite a big difference between both the doodlers and the control group in how many of them actually got the maximum score here. So that's kind of important. Right. So let's go to the next thing, which is to do with how many names were remembered in the memory test that came after that one minute chat with the researcher. So we have here in the table that I mentioned earlier, mean correct recall, false alarms, and memory scores. For the names being recalled that were also monitored during that first task, the control group they remembered 4.3, and the doodling, they recalled significantly more. Actually, if you do a statistical test on this data, they got 5.3. Now, from that, they actually subtracted the false alarms, and that gave a memory score for the control group 4.0 and the doodling group 5.1. Now, the standard deviation, the spread of the data around those averages was comparable with a standard deviation for the control group of 1.5, the non-doodling group, and the doodling group 1.7. So to summarize, the doodling group, on average, remembered 5.1 of the names, and the control group less, uh, they remembered 4.0. And that was actually significantly higher if we look at the number of participants and everything else and take all that into account, which statistical tests do.
0: Mr. Carl, why does it say when it's 4.3 correct minus 0.4 false alarms? So 4.3 minus 0.4, if I do my math right, it sounds like the memory score should be 3.9. Why isn't it the same problem on the other side? If you don't know, I have an answer to my own question.
1: Is it rounding? Yeah. Yeah, I think what they've done in the table, very uh, good question from Joe. You've got, actually, both for the control and the doodling, you've got 4.3 minus 0.5 gives 4, and 5.3 minus 0.3 gives 5.1. Now, that's because the 4.3 has been rounded and the 0.4 has been rounded. So they haven't subtracted 0.4 from 4.3. They've subtracted the non-rounded values from each other, which gives uh, a rounded value of 4.0 from the memory score there. And the same um, effect happens in the doodling score as well there. So, yeah. So it, it might not look correct in that table, but that's just because they've actually rounded the figures up. So they're only one decimal place in the table.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also think about it for each individual person as well. They would have gotten however many correct, which would be a round number, however many mm-hmm. false alarms they've got, which also would be a round number, to get a round number as the memory score. But then they just like did the means of all of the correct ones, yes. means of all the false alarms, means of all the yes. memory scores, and that's how they got those numbers. So it's a little bit, yeah, exactly. a bit funky, yeah. but yeah. statistically accurate. Could accurate. have
2: explained that in their analysis of the data.
0: It would have been very helpful, but they didn't. Come on, Jackie. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Okay. So moving on to the places, which is our incidental information. So looking at the memory scores there. So the correct number for the control groups of the places. So this is the stuff that was in the recording, but the experimenter hadn't asked them to pay attention to and write down in the initial thing. So we are generally expecting them to be a bit worse at this, and we will see here that they were. So for the control group, they got 2.1 correct, and the false alarms here was 0.3, which gives us an actual accurate uh, number here of 1.8 for their total memory score, and the doodling group got 2.6 correct, just a little bit more, the false alarms 0.3, and with a total memory score of 2.4 for the incidental information there. So there was a significant difference between the doodlers and controls in this information as well, similar to the monitored information. What we can do also with these results is look at the total recall of information. And so that means adding the memory score from the monitored information, the names, and the incidental information, the places for both the control and the doodling group. So for the control that added to a total recall of the memory scores, was 5.8, and for the Doodlers, 7.5. Which, funnily enough, since there was a significant difference with just the monitored information and just the incidental information, there was also a significant difference here when we total them up as well.
2: Okay, so you might remember how before I said that there were some people who suspected that there would be a memory test coming up later. And that even then, those people did not try to, like, try, try to remember that information. So what they did as another part of the statistical analysis was to remove data from the participants who suspected a test. And they found out that even when they removed those seven people, or those three and four people, it was still a significant difference. So they were still able to remember, even taking out those few people, the participants were still demonstrating that there was a high performance of the monitoring task in the study. So when we look at a p-value, if it is below 0.05, then that is very statistically significant. But if it's below 0.01, that's even more statistically significant. We are looking at removing data from participants who had suspected a test at a p-value of 0.01, so it was still highly significant, okay? And then the monitoring performance as a covariate made the group effect marginally significant at 0.058, that p-value. Statistically significant results showing that people were able to remember,
3: So in conclusion, Andrade did say that doodling does help concentration on a primary task, particularly when that task is quite basic and doesn't require much cognitive attention. The idea perhaps that doodling keeps us awake and reduces daydreaming. Now, there is a little bit of an issue here because there are two different explanations as to why doodling did help improve performance so much. Okay, so the first of these relates to the cognitive mechanism of attention. Doodlers noticed more words because the act of doodling reduced daydreaming. Or alternatively, doodling could help our memory. So doodling perhaps helped us process the information more deeply, which then made it easier for us to remember. And as Andrade herself said, we can't really say from this study what the explanation is as they did not measure daydreaming. So without measuring daydream, we don't really know which cognitive process is responsible for this improvement. Okay, so a method that would have helped here is to perhaps have some kind of self-report method at the end to find out if participants were daydreaming or weren't daydreaming during the study so that we could then cross-compare or cross-analyse this information with the scores. Another way to do this is perhaps from a more biological approach by using a brain scan to monitor what's happening in the brain while people were completing the task. And that might've made it easier to draw a conclusion about which cognitive method or which cognitive mechanism did help the concentration the most.
2: Let's discuss the individual versus situational debate. And as I like to do it, I always mention what I think, and then we'll see what you guys uh, want to argue with me. It's a debate after all, so join me. In my understanding, my analysis and thoughts on the study is that this really supports both the individual and situational. So you can fight me on that later. But the individual, the participants may have used a similar strategy before in trying to recall information. They might have doodled before, or they might have endured a boring task previously and used some other cognitive attention maintaining thing to help them remember information. They could also just have a personality type that requires, you know, stimulation when processing information and that would explain why their doodling happened to work. However, on the other hand, uh, the situational debate, we could say that the process of doodling could have caused the improvement in recall itself. So just by them doodling that could have been what caused them to remember more than the control group. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I always like to uh, think with the individual and situational debate to look for results that are similar for all individuals in a particular situation. If the results are similar for all the participants in one of the conditions, in one situation, that kind of supports the situational side of the debate. Now we see here that we have averages, but we do actually have kind of a a range of values. Now that range of values shows that there are individual differences in the performance of participants. And that range of values then kind of supports the individual side the dispositional side of the debate, you know, different people perform slightly different, but on average, the situation is dictating the performance. So I think sometimes that's a good way to look at uh, results of studies, look for examples where there might be some difference between individuals in the same situation, in the same conditions, and then look for differences in performance in this case, between the control and the doodling conditions. And that supports the situational side of the debate.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking as well, like along the similar lines, that yeah, there is individual differences, but there's always going to be individual differences. We're all different people, yet we're still all teaching the same information to just different groups of students. And so we're all coming at it different things. But ultimately, the situation, the fact that we have to teach the 9990 syllabus means that we're doing similar things. But what I see here is that with like, when we look at the memory scores of like the monitored information, so the names, the control and the doodling, sure, they had different means, though they were similarly spread around those means. So the standard deviation of 1.5 around the 4.0 of the control for the names and for the doodling, 5.1 is the mean, but the standard deviation was 1.7. So they were similarly spread around those individual means, which suggests to me that that might lend itself to the situational perspective here, that it is something about the situation. So they've got the same room, they've got the same boring tape, but the doodling seems to be aiding to that situation to help the individuals to remember the information.
2: And perhaps having the 15 doodlers and the nine controls who scored the maximum maybe that could contribute to our evidence of situ- leaning more towards situational as well. You guys think that on a paper, they would be able to argue maybe both sides, even if the individual side is a little bit weaker?
1: I think they can. I think, uh, I think it's always there's always some individual differences here in the performance. So I think that supports the individual. As with most things, it's like this combination of the individual and situational factors. The thing i like to do though with this is actually look at the overlap between i mean this is slightly not related to the individual and the situational but looking at the overlapping performance actually is quite interesting here i find that kind of fascinating that we've got control group memory score of four as the average but then a standard deviation of 1.5 and then doodling 5.1 and a standard deviation of 1.7. Now, if you actually look at that on a graph with the average and then do a distribution, you've got a big overlap there in the middle, which is quite interesting. You do tend to see that a lot with different influences of situational and individual factors in results of studies as well. So it's interesting to see how researchers tease apart these two factors of the control versus the doodling, even though the... If you actually look at everybody's performance together, it's actually just, there's actually quite a lot of overlap there.
0: All right, let's move on to our linking these results to the assumptions of the cognitive approach. I'll just quickly run through them again um, so that they are clear in our minds, of course. Now, assumption number one, that behavior and emotions can be explained in terms of the role of cognitive processes such as attention, language, thinking, and memory. The second one, That similarities and differences between people can be understood in terms of individual patterns of cognition. For me, this study tends to lend itself more to assumption one, because we're looking at the behavior of memory being affected by the cognitive processes of attention. So when there is a boring task in a boring room, if our brains aren't engaged enough, then we do tend to daydream and we're more likely to forget both the monitored and the incidental information. And we saw that in the control group because their memory scores were lower both for the monitored information, incidental information and the total information recalled. think can also help to engage that brain and protect against daydreaming by making sure that we're using more of our brain so that less of it is thinking about other things so that both the monitored and the incidental information is less likely to be forgotten at least in the short term, and I will tag that on there because the test for the uh, recall of the information happened about one minute after actually finishing hearing the end of the tape, in which case we don't know if this would be a long-term thing. If we ask them a day later, an hour later even, the results would be a little bit different, I suspect.
3: All right, so thinking now about the evaluation of this study, we return, as always, to our grave mnemonic. And if I pick up on the first point, the G is generalizability. Now we had good variation of age in this sample, suggesting perhaps we do have some elements of generalizability. But it's really, really important to remember that actually these participants were drawn from a volunteer panel, okay? And we know from our research methods that volunteers perhaps are qualitatively different to people who do not volunteer perhaps they have more free time, perhaps they're interested in psychology. We just don't know. And because of that, it makes it very difficult to definitively say that our results reflect the population as a whole. So to recap, a good age range, but restricted to a volunteer panel.
2: Okay, thank you, Leanne. I'll be talking about reliability as we go through our grave analysis. So I would say that because there was such a standardized procedure, it makes the study easy to replicate. Participants were taken from that participant panel. They used a script to present the task of the study to them, the shape sheet that they had to color in, the pencils that they used, they were all the same, the cassette tape, the audio message that was played. It was all the same, the same speed, and so on. So I would argue that it has a good reliability uh, because of the standardized procedure that was used.
0: Thank you, Jamie. So moving on to the A for application. So we're thinking about how we can apply this to our everyday lives. Just a reminder, this is one of our issues in debates. We just like to splice it in with our evaluation here because it's nice to use. And in fact, you can use it in writing your 10 mark answers as well. Generally, application is a strength. And when it's particularly strong, you can use that as one of your strengths. And I think in this study, it is pretty strong. Firstly, I would say that it is applicable to you. It is applicable to you as students to use it when your teacher is getting in a lecturing mood. Or while perhaps there's a video being played in the class, if you're not like much of a visual person, you like to hear it more, then doing a little bit of doodling on the side is not necessarily bad. Because maybe it will mean that you can attend better to the information your teacher has told you that you need to pay attention to and even to that information that you're not necessarily paying too much attention to. I'd say it's also applicable to us as teachers to be careful to not tell kids off quite as much when they are doodling, because us as teachers, we tend to think doodling means they're not paying attention, and we get this horrible negative Nancy kind of point of view about it, when actually it can be really, really helpful. And I know for myself, when I've been listening to speeches and things like that, having a little piece of paper, even my notes app on my phone where I can put up a drawing thing, just literally filling in the screen with progressive colors of scribbles can actually help me to pay attention a lot more to that message, whatever it may be. Linking back to both of those things, it really is a useful strategy for when we have to concentrate and we don't want to concentrate. For example, in a really important but boring lecture. Now, I know that We as teachers, we probably have to sit in on like health and safety meetings or briefings about different things that aren't always very exciting, but they are an important part of our job for keeping our kids safe and for keeping the people around us safe. And so perhaps using doodling in those kind of situations might be a useful thing to do.
1: I think another thing, and this is something that maybe I should have mentioned when I discussed the psychology and the background, is to do with what we call modalities. I talked earlier about the task being, one being a visuospatial task, the doodling, and the other one being an auditory task. The importance of them being two different modalities may mean that the visuospatial task may improve attention without impacting on the resources that are needed for the auditory task. Okay, and that's kind of important. This is kind of important because we're saying that one task is actually increasing the concentration on the other one. So, for example, this uh, kind of a real world application in a different way is understanding the impact of using your mobile phone while driving. There are studies that show you shouldn't use your mobile phone while driving, even with a hands free, because that's actually competing for attentional resources and can lead to accidents. So actually developing a deeper understanding of these attentional processes and the impact that they have on each other can have other applications as well. Um, actually, if we take the results of Andrade, that would actually go against some of the ideas that may be used as counter evidence for not using your mobile phone while driving. You might say, well, you're actually you're focusing more because you're actually listening to something while driving. You can't really apply it that way round because it's two very different tasks, even though it's dual task processing. I just wanted to throw that in. So maybe some of you might think about the different types of tasks that might be involved in it and how you could actually apply it to the real world. That actually kind of becomes more relevant as well when we start to talk about the validity of this study. Because say you're doodling away in your lesson in your teacher says stop that and pay attention you say well actually there's a study by andrada that says that doodling actually will increase my attention and then the teacher might say well maybe not because in the andrada task they weren't doodling the way you're doodling in the andrada task it was a very regulated Type of doodling. It was actually not even doodling. Some people would say it's not even doodling. It was shading. And shading may actually, because it's quite a different task, may actually not be valid as a model for doodling. There was a reason why they chose it though. The reason they chose it was because they didn't want the demand characteristics of that might be caused by people thinking that their doodling was going to be judged, that the doodling, the quality of the doodling was going to be judged, which actually might lead to more of a distractor and actually impact on the attention. So that's why Andrada made this task have less mundane realism. And if you have a task that's got less mundane realism, it's going to have less external validity. You're not going to be able to apply the results to external to outside the realms of the study. So that's one argument here. Because of the lack of mundane realism of the task, you don't have that external validity. So that's one type of validity here. The other type of validity is ecological validity, and that's more to do with the setting and and so on of the experiment. It was done in a lab. It was done under quite artificial conditions. So as well as the task itself lacking validity, actually the situation could be considered to be lacking validity as well. So those are two challenges for being able to apply this to other situations.
0: I just want to add a couple of points in terms of um, this validity thing. One more positive, one more negative. We have used quantitative data, makes it really easy to compare between the groups. So we can look at these numbers and look at these numbers and go, they're different And when there's enough of them, we can use statistical analysis to see that as well. And even though we were shading the shape, the operationalization of doodling in this case was simply the shading. So it does um, lend itself to saying, well, we know we're not looking at wider doodling, we know we're just looking at shading shapes, but we're going to operationalize it as that specifically, rather than individuals putting smiley faces in
1: the circles. Some students might know the term internal validity, That would actually increase the internal validity of the study as well.
0: One other negative on this validity type of thing as well that I've got here is, sadly, the risk of demand characteristics with the suspicion of a memory test. Andrade definitely dealt with this really, really well in saying, we're going to ask them, did you suspect a memory test? Of course, participants may also lie at this point as well there were seven people that were honest and said, yeah, I did suspect a memory test, but I didn't try to remember anything specifically. And even when that data was taken out, uh, as Jamie said earlier, and the results, it didn't affect the results at all. It was still all trending in the same direction and still statistically significant.
2: They're working under the assumption that if you don't ground yourself with a doodling task, then you might give yourself over to daydreaming. But I don't know about you guys, but I don't really daydream. Perhaps it's the lack of definition of daydreaming. Even if I'm in a boring lecture or a boring meeting or something, even if I'm not doodling, I'm not, I'm not daydreaming. I might be remembering something that happened earlier in the day, or I might be staring at the table and not actually thinking anything at all. So I think that the study is working under the assumption that daydreaming is happening when we don't have necessarily a definition of what they mean by daydreaming. And so I have here a possibility of like thought probes during the telephone message or retrospective self-report of daydreaming, maybe to see if like the doodling helps ground the mind in the monitoring task that they're supposed to be listening for or something like that, or maybe like a neuroimaging study to make sure that, you know, to see what parts of the brain are working or being activated, maybe when doodling or when not doodling and doing the monitoring task. So I've found this weakness in the past and I kind of agree with it because I'm not much of a daydreamer, to be honest.
1: Sorry, Jamie, could you just repeat that? Because I just drifted off for a minute. Sorry, I'm joking. I couldn't resist. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you here because the drawing conclusions Here, about what might be the internal cognitive processes without any evidence for that. So, there's quite a bit of hypothesis in the discussion there at the end.
0: That lends itself back to the whole idea of the cognitive approach is that we're, we're putting a stimulus here and then we're looking at the response and we're taking a good old guess about what's happening in the middle in the squidgy part inside your head. So, that's the thing, it's not biological, we can't measure it concretely like with brain scans like with heart rate and so we're taking guesses like with the learning approach like with the social approach with the cognitive approach we're guessing as best as we can
3: now ethically the e of grave this study is quite interesting because obviously we do have deception okay and if we have deception as we know we cannot have informed consent so remember the deception here was that participants were not told that they were going to be asked to recall the place names and we could argue that that potentially could cause them some stress if they can't remember so we perhaps got some limited points to make about psychological harm however the deception here is justifiable we need the deception for this study without the deception the study wouldn't work and actually this type of deception wouldn't harm the participants Maybe make them feel a little bit frustrated or, as I said, stressed, but unlikely to cause them any psychological harm. And at the end of this experiment, it's made very clear that the participants were debriefed and there was actually an apology for not telling them about the memory test. So overall, I would say ethically, although we have a little bit of deception, ethically, this study is quite strong. Okay, so that about rounds up our study on Andrade,
0: the doodling study here in the cognitive approach. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at PsychoGCAIE and uh, send us an email at psychogcaie at gmail.com with your questions, with your comments. We'd love to hear from you. So please send those through. Hopefully, while you were listening to the study, you weren't daydreaming and if you did have a piece of paper out and did some doodling, take a picture of it, share it with us on our Facebook page, send us an email, we'd love to see it. And hopefully it aided you in picking up all the relevant information here.
1: I'd just like to say maybe as well as doodling in class, maybe you can make active notes or your doodles might be relevant to the content that your teacher's delivering and that will actually enable you to process the information at a deeper level, which we know actually encourages memory. So there's not just the control condition, the experimental condition that you can apply to your own learning. You can actually use these other techniques of extending that doodling task to process the information your teacher is delivering to you as well. Make mind maps, concept maps, you know, reformulate the information you're being given in your note taking too leave that with you and uh, good luck with your studies guys. It's been lovely to be back on the podcast again.
2: So that's it from me. I'm Joe.
1: Bye from me over in Kathmandu.
2: I'm Leanne. And this is Jamie. We'll see you next time.